HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Thanks for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. We are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's Pizza in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. It's a lovely sunny day, and we are joined in the studio today by Joshua Brow. Joshua is the program manager for Foods with Integrity, a program through Chipotle. Joshua, welcome. Thanks a lot for having me. So I, I know people out there might be thinking, gosh, I tune into the farm report. What the heck are you doing talking to some guy from a fast food company? So we're going to get to that question. But before we do, um, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about what is Foods with Integrity and, and kind of what is your position more generally? Sure. So, well, Food with Integrity is, is basically Chipotle's uh, mission or, or vision of uh, – for all of our food, uh, I, I sort of like to think that it, it covers the other things that we do, like uh, packaging and energy use in restaurants and stuff. But it, what, what it's really about is uh, our food. And, you know, I think it's focusing on two things. So the first is responsibly raised ingredients. Um, and we'll probably get into that in, in a little bit. And the second is taking those ingredients. Uh, and this is a, a pretty important part of it, taking those ingredients and really preparing them with care in the restaurants, essentially cooking, which is what makes us unique as a fast food company, I think. Cool. So I'm one of the funny things, you know, here on the farm report, we're often looking at, you know, deconstructing the food system and putting things, um, you know, in a context that makes sense for those of us who don't work professionally in food. And so I thought it might be fun to, to take our discussion today, um, basically like through the life of a burrito. I mean, I was looking at the Chipotle menu. You guys do burritos, burrito bowls, tacos, you know, chips and guac. But I, when I think Chipotle, I always think burrito. So I want to start there and um, just kind of talk through some of the ingredients and get a sense of your sourcing mechanisms and scale and kind of the what's what behind the different products. So um, obviously you can't make a burrito without a tortilla. 
um, which is like the you know the foundation, the wrap, if you will. So maybe we should we should start there, and you can tell us a little bit about the the tortillas that you use. Sure thing. So well, we we have two kinds of tortillas, really three kinds, because we do uh, flour tortillas for burritos, and then we have corn tortillas, both for the crispy tacos and the soft tacos. Um, so the flour tortillas are are uh, really fascinating to me because they're a food for sure, but they're also a container, and so. Um, I think the, the as a container, you need to have certain pli- pliability and, and uh, other um, characteristics that uh, if you if you, we weren't wrapping food in in the tortilla, we wouldn't need. And tortillas are, are uh, probably to me our biggest challenge on the menu in terms of sourcing. Uh, you know the the cleanest label, the highest quality uh, stuff because. Um, First of all, the nature of tortillas requires some solid fat. So a traditional uh, flour tortilla would have lard, but you know we want to serve vegetarians and vegans, and so we look to alternatives to lard. The the most common one um, that that you know you'll find in tortillas anywhere is uh, partially hydrogenated oil. The other option being palm oil, typically. So um, we have trace amounts of uh, partially hydrogenated oil in the tortillas. Um, but we are, you know, always looking to improve on that, and um, both both that aspect of the tortillas as well as many others. So, you know, we're experimenting with increasing the ratio of whole wheat in the tortillas, um, and you know, possibly including some uh, organically grown wheat. So, um, tortillas are a really interesting story. It's something that we have um, a lot of brains at Chipotle working on improving. So that's that's the flour one. Then. When it comes to corn and uh, the, the corn, crispy corn and uh, soft corn tortillas, one of the most interesting things to me uh, about those is uh, our crispy corn tortillas. So typically uh, in fast food restaurants and, and even non-fast food restaurants, uh, fr- deep fryers are, are um, filled with soybean oil. Um, soybean oil usually is com- coming from GMO soybeans, and um, you know that's a problem. We can certainly talk a little bit about that. But um, we've been switching over uh, in the U.S. from soybean oil to sunflower oil. Um, one of the reasons being that sunflower oil is non-GMO. There's no such thing as a, a GMO sunflower uh, on the market, as far as I know. Uh, but we also like the way it tastes. And um, so it's sort of a win-win there. Excellent. So, I mean, one of the things that I find so interesting when you're having discussions around uh, fast food companies is you're not, you know, you're you're big. You're, you're commanding a lot of food. So any kind of shift that you make in your purchasing decision essentially has the opportunity to have pretty great ripple impacts and and to really set a standard for food production in the country. You know, not Chipotle alone, of course, but as as one of of many companies. And I think. Looking particularly at the you know soybean versus sunflower oil, like that shift kind of creates a demand for a whole new product line, and that's a that's a big power, and I think also a big responsibility. Well, it is, and I think that what's most interesting about that specific change is that it shows that there are alternatives to some of the uh, ingredients that you know as a as a country we want to move away from and you know we have proven in a number of cases that there are re- really great viable alternatives that may even taste better uh and, and be healthier for uh our customers and so it's it's exciting to be a part of that movement and has chipotle taken a stance more generally on the gmo argument or yeah we have so we talk about this a lot internally and um, you know, this is a, a big issue. It's only increasing. I actually just saw in my email uh, a few minutes ago that 
uh, Senator Boxer introduced a uh, GMO labeling law in the Senate today, so I'm excited to see where that goes. But, um, you know, there, there are GMOs in our food, uh, like all fast food restaurants, uh, but we're really committed to figuring out ways to remove them uh, as much as possible. So I gave you the soybean oil example, the transition to sunflower oil. Um, the other places that you'll see GMOs in our restaurants are in the, the corn and the corn tortillas, and that's something that, that we're looking at. But, you know, as you know, it's about 90% of the corn produced in the country is, uh, is, comes from genetically modified crops. And so we're, um, we're looking into alternatives to that, whether it's non-GMO um, but not organic corn or organic corn, which, as we know, is, is never GMO. So um, that's the, the, the first place. The second would be um, some of the cooking oils that we use on the grill. And again, we're moving away from the soybean oil there toward alternatives like rice bran oil or canola oil. Uh, that's really exciting, too. The two things that I think are bigger challenges on the GMO front are uh, come, come in ingredients that we're not necessarily using directly in the restaurants, uh, but they're, they're indirectly in our food. And that is the, um, our, our beverages, the sodas that you, know, you drink from the Coke fountain, and then the uh, feed that's given to animals. So um, you know, we've got a, a re some really great stories on the meat front, but one of the things that is nearly impossible for any, any meat producer, even some of the, the great ones that uh, sell at, at a farmer's market, for example, um, the feed that, that they're giving their animals, the grains, or if, if it's corn and soy it, and it's not organic, typically it's a, it's a genetically modified uh, grain. Yeah, well, that's super true, and I think something people don't realize. I, I know, like, with with pigs in particular, there's no, you know, you're not seeing, you don't see much organic pork out there because no. there's pigs are such huge consumers of grain, and there's just not a ton of organic grain on the market. I mean, you're essentially setting up a competition between the, you know, your local pork producer and, you know, Frito-Lay who wants to make organic chips with regards to production, but I think there is an opportunity for organizations like yours to start talking about, hey, we're looking to make some of these changes, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit um, about timeline. You know, um, there is, it's not like you flip a switch overnight and every Chipotle across the country is now using something different. Um, there's a kind of supply and demand issue that, you know, there's a ramping up to, to make these transitions, but then also kind of physically getting the, the word out to the stores and finding the distribution chains in different parts of the country. Because you guys have almost, what, like almost 1,500 stores in the U.S.? Yeah, I think by the end of this year we will. And then you're also starting to um, do some work in internationally. That's right. We have restaurants in Canada, a handful of them in Toronto, and one in Vancouver, I believe, and a, a few in London, and one in Paris. So there's a lot of competing. It just seems like there's like when you're looking at putting together a burrito. To me, it you know initially seems very simple, but then you start thinking about kind of the the sourcing and the supply, keeping the price in line, making sure you're using the best tasting products. Um, you know, creating a product that's consistent across the world per se. Um, and then if you're looking in particular at cooking oils and transitions, it's like different oils can, you know, react very differently in the kitchen and sure. some are suitable for certain tasks and others just aren't. So lots going on there. And, and since you brought up meat, let's kind of jump right into that. So what are the, what are the meat choices for burritos at Chipotle? So you've got four choices now. You've got carnitas, which is a, a, a braised pork. You've got barbacoa, which is a braised beef. And then you have grilled chicken and grilled steak. And so on the, uh, you know, on your website, you guys talk a little bit about 
you know, whenever possible, you use meat from animals raised without the use of antibiotics or added hormones. Um, so how, you know, how do you kind of set standards for where, where you buy from? And, and maybe if it makes sense, if you want to pick the pork or the beef or the chicken or something more specific that we can kind of talk through and give us just a sense of the story behind that. Sure. Well, to me, the pork is the best story. Uh, First, because that's really where everything began with Steve Ells, our founder, and the whole Food with Integrity mission, but also because, uh, to me, there's the biggest difference uh, between commodity pork and the pork that you're going to get at Chipotle. And in fact, uh, for for carnitas, for pork, if we can't find uh, the, the the types of pork that we're looking for, we won't sell carnitas in the restaurant at that time. Fortunately, it hasn't been an issue for us in recent years, but that's the policy. So if, we're, if we can't find pork that was raised without subtherapeutic antibiotics and uh, certain, you know, humane conditions, then, we, you know, we just won't serve it. Um, but so the pork story is really exciting. So Steve started the company in 1993 and, and uh, sometime, I, I want to say it was like 99, 2000, he, as the company was growing, he, he really wasn't happy with the quality of the carnitas, the, the, the taste and the eating quality of it. And he uh, started looking into alternatives, uh, reading a, an article in The Art of Eating about Paul Willis and Nyman Ranch. He uh, started exploring that option. He, he sampled some of, of Paul's pork and uh you know the the difference was really astounding to him and so even though the uh price difference was pretty substantial and and he had to raise the price of a of a carnitas burrito by about a dollar which was at that time was was really significant i I think uh, you know carnitas was four or five bucks then um he made that transition and carnitas sales really exploded because it, it tasted a lot better. And that was sort of the beginning of, of Steve's journey to, to look into all of the ingredients that we buy and to really try and find sources that weren't based on exploitation. So um, I, I described a little bit about the pork. Uh, it's antibiotic-free, uh, no subtherapeutic antibiotics, which is a, an important distinction for us. Um, and, uh, you know, the animals are, are either raised out on pasture I don't know if you've been to Paul's farm. I, I, I know you've you've been involved in some pork production in yeah, the past. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think I saw a peek of it in the, uh, uh, the what is it, the meat uh, the meat movie that just came out that you got. I mean, they do feature American Chipotle. meat. American meat, yeah. Sorry. Paul's in there, that's right. Yeah, um, so I saw, I, I've seen it, you know, via video, and people can check that out on American Meat, which is screening, um, you know, across the country right now, and definitely a film worth taking a peek at. So anyway, so they're, they're either raised outdoors on pasture or uh, in deeply bedded barns. And, um, you know, most pork in the country, I, I want to say 95% of these numbers are changing, are raised in, in pretty uh, terrible con- confinement conditions. So, um, you know, it's w- we've really created the market, helped create the market for this type of pork and other meats. And uh, it, it continues to be something that we, we're pushing forward uh, all the time. So do you... Um do you have a sense, um, you know, if I'm a farmer and I want to kind of start selling to Chipotle, um, you know, how that process works a little bit? So I'm, I'm not directly involved in sourcing the meat, um, but I, I spend a lot of time talking to the team of people that does. And, um, you know, there are a number of ways that, that as a farmer you could get into our supply chain. The most typical way would be to become a, a part of a network like Nyman Ranch which is not a co-op, but functions in some ways like a co-op in that it aggregates um, 
producers who follow a certain set of protocols. So that's really the way to do it. And, you know, we work with Nyman Ranch, we work with a, a number of others. And, um, you know, it, those things tend to, to operate somewhat regionally. And so, you know, if I, if I were a farmer in, in a, a specific part of the country, I would, I would look to, to uh, you know, my, my neighbors and, and colleagues to, to figure out sort of how, where the, the, you know, quote unquote, naturally raised uh, network was, was sure. Find a point of entry that way. And do you have a sense um, the, that your pork producers now are predominantly pork producers who were already farming using these methods or started a farm using these methods? Or are they farms that have transitioned because there's now this opportunity to produce food in a different way than they had been previously? So I think it's across the board. Um, you know, there's a lot of variation. Um, so we do know a lot of stories about farmers who, you know, ha their families have been on, on the land that they're farming for generations and, uh, you know, transition from, uh, you know, old, good old fashioned, you know, pasture farming to, uh, to conventional uh, pork production and then transition back because, uh, you know, they, they wanted to earn the premium that, that Chipotle and other companies are, are willing to pay for. Uh, the higher quality meats, uh, but some have been doing it all along. So it's really a range. A mixed bag, yeah. That makes sense. Well, I want to move on to some of the non-meat ingredients, but um, we are going to take just a, a short break, and when we come back, I would love to talk into the bean conversation. So hang tight. Great. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network, and we're talking burritos. This one's called Someone Like You by Pamela Royal on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. All right, we are back. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are in the studio with Josh Brow of Chipotle, and we're talking about the sourcing of, of their products. And so before the break, we were talking a little bit about meat, but I do want to, to get a chance to touch on some of the other items that compose the burrito. Uh, now, I saw on the website that about 
the, with regards to the beans, it's something like 40% of the beans are sourced organically. Um, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So about 40% of the beans are sourced organically. Uh, and then another smaller percentage, about 5%, are grown using conservation tillage or no-till methods, which aren't organic certified, but um, we're Food Alliance certified. I know the Food Alliance uh, designation may be disappearing uh, because that organization's had some difficulties. But, yeah, we work with uh, bean farmers in uh, a couple parts of the country. The Pacific Northwest is the one that I'm most familiar with. And um, they're doing some really interesting stuff. And, you know, our, our demand for beans grows with every restaurant. So, uh, we, you know, we, we spend a good bit of time, you know, learning about that. It's not something that I'm really an expert on, but we have a person whose job it is to buy beans and rice and, and all those things. And, and she knows uh, a ton about, you know, the way that all of our producers are, uh, are growing their beans. Cool. And just more generally, you know, that 40% number, you know, 40% is great. But I know people are asking, you know, why not 100%? Like, what's, what's the kind of barrier there? Do you have a sense? or? Sure. Well, the, you know, there are two barriers, the, the two obvious ones. One is price, and the other is uh, supply and availability. And, um, you know, for us, both of them are factors. It, it, you know, in, in the case of, of our meats, uh, it's usually uh, availability because we're, you know, we're willing to pay the premium to, to get the higher quality meats that we buy. Uh, with respect to beans... Um, I, I think it's also a matter of, of supply, and obviously, you know, if at a certain price you can get, you know, just about anything you want. But you know, we're trying to sort of slowly grow the supply uh, as we grow and, and increase uh, both the percentage of beans that we're buying from from you know organic producers and and, and um, you know the, the conservation tillage uh, folks, but. But also, um, as we grow, you know, that gross amount, you know, the total pounds that we're buying, it more or less, you know, is always going to increase every year. So you bring up an interesting point with you know, talking about beans being grown in different parts of the country. And that was one of the other things I was curious about is um, with regards to your procurement, is there a focus on buying things domestically um, and in particular, I'm looking at, you know, one of my favorite burrito ingredients, which is obviously guacamole, which is primarily composed of avocados. I know, you know, California produces a ton of avocados, but so does Mexico. And um, I'm just wondering how kind of domestic versus non-domestic works its way into the kind of hierarchy of decisions for purchasing. Well, we're, we're really focused on domestic sourcing. The vast majority of the ingredients that we buy do are, are produced in the U.S., avocados included. We buy a lot of avocados from California, but we also buy from Mexico um, and uh, a, a couple of other countries in South America. I'm not sure about that. But, um, you know, we're, we're really, you know, despite the emphasis on uh, domestic uh, sourcing, we, we really are open to other options when, you know, it's the responsible choice to make for, um, you know, farmers and, as well as the, the, the bottom line and, and our customers. So, um, you know, we... We're really always looking at the specific producer, and you know my feeling is that um, you know you can find great farmers all around the world, and you know it's great to buy from the U.S. But when you know when it makes sense, we will look outside the country. And you know I have to say, like myself, and I, and I'm sure probably a, a number of listeners are are you know super suspicious and rightfully so, I think of fast food companies, uh, companies of the size that Chipotle is. Um, you know, one of the conversations I told some of my 
my girlfriend said I was having having you on, and they're like, well, Chipotle, I mean, aren't they owned by McDonald's? Isn't that just like the same thing in a different name? Um, but you guys aren't and haven't been. No, we, we have not been owned by McDonald's since, I believe, 2006. So McDonald's invested in the company when it was pretty small and helped us grow. But Steve, who I mentioned earlier, has uh, been in charge the entire time. And, uh, you know, as far as I can tell, McDonald's and I, I've actually worked for McDonald's uh, b- before Chipotle. So, you know, I, I don't really see um, any any real influence. What what McDonald's provided was the the capital to grow and some of the sort of logistical know-how that uh, you need to to have a a national restaurant company. But uh, we're totally independent now. We're publicly owned. You can buy shares today. Um, And uh, yeah, we're we're totally independent. Uh, But with respect to your other question about fast food, I mean, first of all, you know, one of the things that I really love about Chipotle is that we're always the first to say that we're not perfect we don't have all the answers. And, you know, as committed we, as we are to really improving the way that fast food uh, is done in this country, you know, we have a, a long way to go. And it's really kind of a, a, a journey that will never be completed. Um, so, you know, I, I think that what differentiates us is that we're cooking a lot of our, our food in the restaurant. And, um, you know, typical fast food is designed for mass production and convenience and low cost, whereas uh, what, what we're doing, obviously, uh, you know, we try to make it a, as as affordable as possible. But um, you know, there are certain things that we won't really uh, sacrifice, like you know, making our guacamole in the restaurants every day, and, and a lot of our other food as well. So, um, you know, we're, we're we're definitely a fast food company, and, and personally, I, I'm really proud of that because I think fast food uh, it's an important component of of the the general food landscape, and I don't think it's going anywhere. Uh, but you know, our, our mission is really to change the way that people think about and eat fast food, and and to uh, to to prove. And I, I think we've done this, and we continue to do it. You know, we're really proving that fast food can be can be cooked in the restaurants, and it can be made from really great ingredients. They're kind of building an alternative system to yeah, fast food. Absolutely, within the fast food system. So, right. I, I mean, that, that would be kind of the other thing where I'm like, you know, I know that you guys have a concentration of um, shops uh, in California, for example, kind of home of the burrito, taco. You know, if I'm a consumer, I'm out on the road. Why am I going to Chipotle? I mean, isn't it more, uh, you know, sustainable, responsible to, to go to the kind of taqueria down the street that's, you know, owned by, you know, a small family? Like, how am I making those decisions as a consumer? You know, why is Chipotle, you know, where does Chipotle stand out in that kind of hierarchy of decisions for an individual? Sure. Well, I think it's a great question. I grew up in, in uh, San Diego. I love little taquerias. I grew up eating in them. And, um, you know, I continue to. And so, do, so does everyone that works at Chipotle. Um, I think what uh, the, the reason you go to a Chipotle when you're in California or anywhere else is because you know that you're gonna that it, it, you're gonna have a really high quality of ingredients. You know that uh, you know what you're getting, uh, you know from from the food, and and it can be uh, you know tailored sort of to whatever your mood is because of the the nature of the of the service model. Um, but you know I, I think you know California's interesting because we have, um, you know, we're, we're testing this thing called sofritas, which is a, a tofu option. So it s- sits right next to the, the chicken and the, and the, the, the barbacoa and the, the other meats. Um, and it's an, an organic tofu that, uh, that's made it by a small artisanal producer in Oakland. And it's, to me, it's, you know, it's an awesome alternative to, to meat. And 
uh, when I see uh, when I, when I compare what what we're doing on, on that type of front to a, a typical taqueria, um, but I think it's partially because of our size we're able to to try and innovate and uh, and and provide people with alternatives that don't exist currently. So I think in some ways you, I mean, it's a little funny. You're almost competing against yourself in, in some sense. Um, you know, like the tofu option, you know, I mean, people, should people be eating less meat, do you think? Or, I mean, is that part of that conversation? Or is it, is, do you're finding there's like a rise in demand for vegetarians? Or, I mean, what's the like driver behind including that on the menu? So I would say all of the above. I mean, one of the things that I think is really cool about Chipotle is that uh, unlike other fast food companies, our uh, leaders, you know, our CEO or our C- CMO, they'll come right out and say that people need to be eating less meat. And I think that that type of honesty and transparency is really important. And, you know, we want to provide uh, an alternative, but the reality is if it doesn't taste good, we're not going to sell it and customers won't buy it. And and that's where I think we really do a good job is, you know, we have awesome chefs testing these items and developing the recipes um, for a very long time before we're bringing them to market. And so then when we do, um, you know, we know that they're great and we can really stand behind them. Well, I want to talk about that consistency factor. I mean, I know that's kind of uh, one of the kind of go-to um, reasons for why people uh, buy fast food, why you shop at fast food, why when I'm like traveling through certain parts of the Midwest, I, I go to the Starbucks if I see the Starbucks because sure. I, kn- I know what I'm going to get. You know, if you go to a Chipotle in New York or, you know, New Mexico or, you know, the Pacific Northwest, the carnitas burrito is the carnitas burrito and i'm just curious you know as producers like from the far from the farming perspective of it you know obviously there there must you know there is changes in the food production or the, you know the pork tastes slightly different in certain parts of the country where it's grown or the cilantro has a different i, I mean there how do you kind of negotiate like how how are standards set with regards to like how things kind of taste or the size of the thing? You know, you know every kind of uh, potato that's grown from McDonald's has to conform to a specific size to be part of the McDonald's French fry. I mean, are there things like that for Chipotle where you're like we buy pigs, you know, at this size? You know, you have those standards to maintain consistency, and I'm just wondering where some of the struggles or challenges come up with things. Sure. Well, we have a good bit of flexibility because a lot of what we're doing is actually being cooked in the restaurant. So sure, we have standards for the romaine that we buy, say. I think that's a good example. But because you have an actual human being cutting it, um, you're able to, to deal with the variation better than, than a machine in a, in a factory or a commissary can. And so you know, I, I, if you ask Steve or if you ask some of our chefs uh, about seasonal variation, they'll say that they can taste food differently in in chipotles around the country as well as uh over seasons but you know consistency really is uh for us as well as you know all all the other fast food companies it's really one of the big challenges um in moving toward a more sustainable model and you know i see in the future um you know fast food models that that are seasonal that incorporate certain seasonal um, characteristics into the, the food that they're cooking and the way that they're sourcing it. But, um, you know, we, we, we really, you know, because of our, of how limited our menu is and because a lot of the things that we buy, you know, think about what's in, in the guacamole or the salsas, it's onions, peppers, garlic, things that you can get in much of the country and through a pretty big growing season. 
um, you know, we are able to uh, probably rely on suppliers around the country a little bit more than if, like you said, you know, we had to have uh, potatoes that were a specific size, um, you know, every day of the year. Awesome. So unfortunately, we are out of time. But before we go, I- I'm just curious, you know, in in your your work, like kind of looking to um, promote and ensure and kind of be the kind of touchstone for the Foods with Integrity campaign. You know, let's say you have uh, a magic wand um, and, and you're able to kind of like, bam, tomorrow make one sweeping change that you feel would be kind of very significant for both your organization, but also for the landscape of American farming. Is there something that jumps immediately to mind Absolutely. for you? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's animal genetics. I mean, one of the big uh, challenges that we face on chicken, pork and beef is that the genetics uh, of most uh, livestock in the the U.S. have been bred for efficiency above all else, and that really restricts us from being able to get the the taste that we want, get the the welfare that that we want, and we're working on a lot of really interesting projects. I wish we had more time um, to try and and find sources that have the, the heritage genetics bred back into, you know, things like the Cornish cross chicken and, and the other, you know, really conventional uh, breeds that, that we're using in the U.S. Interesting. So if folks want to learn more about the campaign, what's the best way for them to get engaged with your work? Well, the, the website's great and uh, social media, you know, we're very responsive on social media. Um, I am uh, working on a really interesting project that's going to kind of uh, expand on our discussion of these issues. And uh, I can't talk about it now, but it's coming soon. And, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I promise you'll see it. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for being my guest today, Josh. It was really interesting to get a chance to speak with you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, a lot of fun. Uh, thank you so much for uh, staying tuned in out there. Definitely uh, check us out next Thursday. We'll be talking about churro sheep. So look forward to that. Um, this program, like all 30 of our live weekly shows, are available for free as a download through iTunes. You can also find us on Stitcher Smart Radio um, or visit the website, which we hope you will. It's www.heritageradionetwork.org. We are a member-supported organization, so if you like what you hear, we hope you'll consider clicking that Donate tab and becoming a member today. Thanks so much for listening, and keep tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update. All right. Thanks for tuning in to the Grow NYC Market Update. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are on the line with Gene Hodesh of New York City's Green Markets. Gene, where are we traveling this week? So this week, I thought we'd continue our tour through Brooklyn on over to Grand Army Plaza Green Market, which is our second largest green market in the program, and it happens to be my neighborhood green market, and um, 
I just love it. It's my favorite place to spend Saturday morning. So the market, if you've never been, it's located at the northwest corner of Prospect Park, and it was opened in 1989. It's right under uh, the beautiful sort of Arc de Triomphe that's this great iconic symbol of Brooklyn. And at the height of the season, there are over 30 vendors selling everything from smoked duck to local grains, these wonderful aged cheeses, fresh goat cheese, hard cider, pressed cider, potted herbs, and a wide variety of fruits and vegetables. And the market is amazing. People are just streaming in on Saturday mornings from all sorts of surrounding neighborhoods, Crown Heights, Prospect Heights, Park Slope, and Windsor Terrace. And it's just this mecca of activity. So I always run into people that I know. There are a ton of babies and strollers, but also there are a lot of people who are in their 20s and 30s who grew up going to that market, and now it's just this regular stop for them every week. And they hang out and really spend a lot of time catching up with their neighbors and talking to one another. And then you'll get runners coming in and out of the park on their way to and from, making loops around, um, and tons of people just coming in from every direction with bags of textiles to recycle. They're lugging in bags of compost to drop off. They've got uh, milk bottles. They're going to return to Ronnie Brook. And I'm always coming over with my library books because the library is right across the street. So I offload my library books, and then I lighten my load, and I can start shopping. Awesome. Well, what are you shopping for? I mean, who can we expect to find at the market? So this market is year-round, um, but it is very exciting in late April because we see a lot of uh, old faces that have been gone through the winter coming back. So uh, just last weekend, Bill Maxwell returned, and you'll find him in the northwest corner of the market right at that uh, sort of corner by Prospect Park West. And he's got a limited supply right now. Things are just starting to heat up on his farm. So he's got arugula and scallions for now. But eventually in the summer, he's got an amazing array of Jersey-grown heirloom tomatoes. And then another uh, person that just came back last week is our flower vendor, Labak Farm. And he's got these beautiful, huge bunches of uh, bright yellow forsythia branches and tulips in every shade and lots of daffodils. And then if you look out in the next couple of weeks, he'll have uh, buckets full of lilacs. And then on May 4th, Kernan Farm will return. And I'm not making any promises, but Liz told me, she's like, one thing is always certain, they'd never show up without sweet peas. So... It's always an exciting day when Kernan comes back, and they're also located in New Jersey, um, so they're always, <coughs> excuse me, the first of the farm to have, sorry, first of the market to have asparagus, strawberries, and cherry tomatoes. And then just across the market from Kernan, you'll find, inevitably, it's always a really long line for Blue Moon Fish. They're an amazing fishmonger, um, and they just recently came back. They're off all winter in the Florida Keys, but they've been back for a couple weeks And um, they sell amazing smoked fish, all kinds of shellfish, whole fish, fillets. I just got, they're also at Union Square on Wednesdays. So yesterday I saw them and I got some mackerel fillets. So I would recommend seeing if they've got any of those at uh, Grand Army this weekend. The mackerel season ends in May, so you want to get them while you can. Awesome. Well, so for folks who are making a special trip over to the market, what, what else is going on in the neighborhood that they should be sure not to miss? This is such a good neighborhood to spend your Saturday in. There's so much going on. So there's the Brooklyn Public Library right across the street. And then um, the Brooklyn Museum is just a stone's throw away. So next Saturday, the 4th, is, uh, they always have free first Saturdays, so free admission from 5 to 11 at night. There's a really great um, show by a Nigerian artist that's up right now. And then also there's the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens, and this weekend they're going to host their annual Cherry Blossom Festival. 
And I just went over there, I think, two weekends ago and saw the magnolias in bloom, and they're so stunning, such a great place to be this time of year. So if you haven't made it yet this spring, definitely go over for a visit. Awesome. And I think one of my favorite things about the Brooklyn Botanical Garden is, you know, if you're feeling strapped for cash and you can get over there before noon on Saturdays, it's free. So definitely it always inspires me to get up maybe a touch earlier than I might, but it's yeah. worth the trip. Um, well, that sounds awesome. Definitely one of my favorite markets. What else is happening uh, at the green markets? What else is going on event wise that we should be keeping on our calendar? Sure. So not happening specifically in the green market, but I definitely wanted to mention the food book fair that's coming up May 2nd through 5th. Um, There are just a number of panels and readings and dining events, chances to mingle with authors, um, chances just to buy cookbooks till your heart's content. Um, So visit thefoodbookfair.com for a full lineup of events and and places to go to take part in that event. And then Mother's Day is coming up right around the corner. It's like Hard to believe that next week is May. Um, But at Union Square on May 10th, we're going to have a flower-arranging demonstration with uh, Anna Tudorov from Dutch Mill Garden, so she'll teach you how to make beautiful bouquets. And then on May 11th, um, there's going to be an edible flower cooking demo with the Natural Gourmet, also at Union Square. So you can think about things to make for your mom for breakfast or for lunch to celebrate her that day. And then a little bit down the road uh, on Sunday, May 19th at noon at the Carroll Gardens Market, there's going to be a firefighter's chili cook-off, um, which is going to be a really fun event. So if you say, it's going to be two different um, troops from that neighborhood, and they're going to face off who can make the best chili. And luckily for everyone who shops at the market, they'll get to try samples at noon. So definitely go over and say hello to the firefighters and eat their chili. Oh, sounds like a hot competition. <laughs> awesome. Well, Jean, thanks so much for giving us the update. I uh, appreciate you taking some time out to check in with us. Sure. Um, for folks who want to find out more about what's going on at the markets, uh, get a sense of schedule and days and, and where they can find all the great green markets in the city, you can definitely visit org. You can also follow them on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr. Check them out whichever way you want and make sure you're tuning in every week for the Grow NYC Market it's Update. On, let's get it, it on. It's on. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.